0: Here at the Sociology of Everything podcast, we acknowledge the people of Ghana Yarta, whose land this episode was mainly produced on, and whose past and present elders we pay our respects to. Hi, I'm Eric Sue. And
1: I'm Louis Ifrus.
0: And we're Lou and the Sioux, and this is the Sociology of Everything podcast, brought to you by UniSA. The university that currently has a vice chancellor who loves Star Trek. (laughs) Does he? Yeah. He Uh, loves Star Trek. I didn't know that. In fact, uh, he is such a fan of Star Trek that he recently arranged for George Takei Mm. to come to the university to give a talk.
1: Yeah, that's pretty impressive. Yeah. I wonder if when he got the job, that was one of his career goals.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And I wonder when George Takei got this invitation email from our university, Louis, Mm. that he looked at it and went, oh, my.
1: <laughs> it's so funny. I, I knew that impression. Oh, my. I knew that impression was coming. <laughs> <laughs> I was just waiting for it. I'm like, where's it going to be? I should have reached over for a sound effect.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> God.
0: <laughs> in this episode, we're going to look at the work of Shoshana Zuboff, particularly her article in the Journal of Information Technology titled The Big Other. Surveillance capitalism and the prospects of an information civilization. Louis, how would you describe
1: Zuboff's work? Well, the first thing I'd say is influential. <laughs> because, yeah, to put it lightly, yeah, Zuboff is a one of the most prominent contemporary figures when it comes to <laughs> examining how capitalism's changing, and in particular how information and communication technologies are impacting the capitalist system. And obviously, if if we go back to kind of the earlier sociology of Marx and Engels, we know that capitalism is one of the most important structures for society. It impacts so much about how we live our lives, what we do, what opportunities we have, how we're influenced. And so if there's something as important as information, communication, technology, and if that's changing the capitalist system in some fundamental ways, then that's changing a lot. <laughs> it's an important thing to be examining and Zuboff's at the real the forefront of describing what's going on.
0: Yeah, and this article we should mention first of all has a lot in it, okay? It's packed full of ideas, it's packed full of insights, but it's part of a broader suite of work that she's produced on this topic. Mm. And so we're only going to be able to cover in this episode some of just the key ideas of what this article is going on about. But we highly recommend that you actually do a thorough reading of this particular article because she just has a lot to say. And it's like really impressive. It's really, really impressive. But what is Zuboff trying to argue? What is she trying to claim? What is she trying to sensitize us to in this particular piece? And I think we could do worse than begin where she does, which is observe that there might be a shift going on in the early decades of the 21st century in the way capitalism works, in the way there's a new logic of accumulation. Now, Louis, that's quite a mouthful. (laughs) New logic of accumulation It's not something we use in our everyday conversations. What does it refer to?
1: Well the logic of accumulation is how wealth is generated within the system, how yeah. wealth is accumulated. Yeah. And if we think about traditional capitalism, hmm. wealth is accumulated through the production of goods <laughs> as cheaply as possible. Yeah, <laughs> Pushing right. down wages if we can. <laughs> <laughs> and then the selling of those goods and the consumption of those goods by others. And if we can push up prices and make some extra cash, yeah. fantastic. But they're the key mechanism within capitalism through which wealth is accumulated. And so what Zuboff's talking about when she talks about a new logic of accumulation is the fact that this system has changed or been altered in some way. And the key variable is mm. the introduction of big data, or the introduction of information that is now being generated and brought within this system and changing relationships, creating new markets. It's messing with the system in a, quite a few different ways. So
0: the production of information is key to her argument, isn't it, Louis?
1: Oh, absolutely. That's the entire thing that this whole, her whole theory rests on, is the fact that when technologies suddenly have the ability not just to continue to produce things more efficiently mm. or not just uh, to allow things to be exchanged more easily, when technology is suddenly generating data about all of these things, yeah, yeah, then yeah. It's, it, it is, like you said, a whole new ballgame. Indeed, Zuboff says that big data, and this is a quote, big data is above all the foundational component in the deeply intentional and highly consequential new logic of accumulation that I call surveillance capitalism. And so that's the term that Zuboff introduces to describe how big data is reshaping and influencing the capitalist system, surveillance capitalism, which maybe gives you a bit of a hint about where we're going to be going <laughs> with yeah. her work here as well. So why is it consequential That so much
0: data, so much information is generated about everything really in our lives
1: these days. Well, one reason it's consequential is because you can just picture how beneficial it is for actors within a capitalist system to have that data. Mm. If you're a company that's about to produce a good and sell it in the market, imagine if you have a decent idea on what everyone in that market wants to buy. Imagine if you can yeah. think, I know that the, my, my potential consumers really want purple cars. Yeah, <laughs> I know right. that because I have information that tells me the percentages of people who search purple cars well, online or do whatever or else. Or,
0: you know, you have data that you know the type of person who would be interested in buying a purple car. Yeah. Like if they are really into Joker. as like a comic book character, right? That they have, I don't know, like Joker themed bed linen. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And you can show from the data that you've gathered Mm -hmm. that they would most likely also be into a car that's purple Mm That's valuable.
1: Yeah, but it's more than that as well, because data is not just important for people doing pretty traditional capitalist-style activities. It's not just important for people to know the market before they try and sell goods. It's actually creating new markets. It's creating new relationships within the capitalist system. So one example is the data that's produced by any company can then be sold to other companies they don't just have to use that data themselves for their own business activities. It could just be a side hustle. (laughs) That car company may have data on who wants to buy purple cars and it may sell that to an entirely different entity who's interested in color preferences because they want to sell paint or something else.
0: So actually, if you think about it, surveillance capitalism marks a change in the way in which producers and consumers relate to one another. Because, in a traditional market economy, it was pretty straightforward. If I'm a producer, I've got goods, consumer want those goods, I sell it to them, I earn profit, it is what it is. But in the era of surveillance capitalism, in the era of technologies that can produce information, the goal of some information companies is no longer to just sell items. So think of something, for example, like Facebook Marketplace. Mm -hmm. Facebook Marketplace is a part of the Facebook platform that allows people to list goods for sale. In the traditional capitalist marketplace, you would need to pay a fee to list your item. So that's a service that Facebook is providing. But Facebook now is no longer interested in charging people any money to make their listing when they want to sell a good. They seemingly give this service away for free. But Zuboff has something really interesting to say about why this occurs. She actually has a pretty interesting explanation for why a company who would normally charge someone for a service they're providing, well, they would just simply say, yep, have at it. You can use this service seemingly at no charge. <laughs> What's the explanation she gives, Zoe, for why that's
1: the case? Well, the explanation for that is because... Although they're providing a service, being a platform which goods can be bought and sold, the company doesn't actually care (laughs) what people do on that service. It doesn't care what goods people list on Facebook Marketplace and what goods people buy on Facebook Marketplace. What it cares about is just generating the data about all of the activity that's going on. It cares about recording what people are buying and selling because that data is something that they can then sell and use. It's big, like we talked about before about how new markets are created in the system of surveillance capitalism. And this is an example of a new market being created for data and that then creating an earlier service. So
0: previously, capitalism generated profit because goods themselves were valuable. Okay? I have a valuable good. People want it. They want to buy it. So that means I'm a successful company. Nowadays, Companies can be successful not by having goods they want to sell. It's because they have data about people's lives. Exactly. Right? And that's a game changer in some respects according to Zuboff. So, that's why Facebook Marketplace exists. It doesn't necessarily it doesn't exist to try to sell you anything. It exists because it wants to extract something far more valuable how you live your life. Because when you sell something on Facebook Marketplace, you are giving them data about your purchasing habits. It's giving them data about the things you own or have owned. And this then links in with so many of the different facets of our lives. Because think about how valuable it is to get a picture of how people behave. And this is a really interesting point, I think. And if you just consider all the way data is generated in our lives, it's pretty stunning. It's really stunning. Like just track every piece of data your existence generates in a 24-hour period. I think you might be
1: shocked. And it's such an interesting point. Facebook Marketplace is kind of an obvious example, but in this new system, when, as you describe how valuable data is in this new system, the process by which companies generate and sell data isn't just limited to the obvious ones, Google and Facebook and whatever. Suddenly every company is trying to get part of this action. A company like Strava, whose primary purpose is to provide a kind of social media orientated around exercise and does have a pretty standard business model Mm. in uh, getting subscribers and people paying for that service Mm. as a side hustle so to speak it also generates data that can be used for other external purposes and every company can do this if you sell a product you generate data about who's buying that product
0: now that actually raises a really interesting point about this particular piece which is actually the insights zuboff produces is actually based off of two articles that were authored by google's chief economist hal varian Varian describes what the Google business model is all about. He also makes a few predictions about where society is heading and how that aligns with the interests (laughs) of Google. And it's quite interesting, actually. It's quite fascinating because in this piece, Zuboff kind of does two things. She describes how data is being captured and how it's become an essential part of our lives and of capitalism. And she also talks about the implications of that transformation.
1: Mm. In fact, one significant thing she refers to in the implications and more particularly in how this is impacting individuals and what this means for individuals who exist in this era of surveillance capitalism is that we're constantly monitored. <laughs> we're constantly being tracked or followed or we're it, actually, it's more that we're constantly producing data. Everything we do now is now producing data.
0: And I think this is especially poignant if you look at like how Google smart home devices have really come to dominate people's <laughs> lives. And like previously, like there was no data generated when people turned on a light or, or turned off a light. Mm. There was also presumably no data about the items at a supermarket that you bought that somehow could be consolidated and analyzed. People mm. just bought what they bought and maybe you have a rough idea of what your clientele is like. But the data that we as individuals can generate and that can be collated about us is truly amazing. Mm.
1: Uh, what I always find funny, and I'll be honest, I'm someone who has potentially <laughs> drunken the Kool-Aid on <laughs> some of this stuff. I won't mention all the different brands, but I had the smart speakers. I got the smart locks. My house tracks me everywhere. But friends of mine who say... Don't you worry that everything you're doing is being monitored? I say to them, well, most things you do is being monitored as well. Because you're right when you're talking about just how all-encompassing it is. If you have a smartphone or if you have, you know, every time you make a purchase at a store, everywhere you go, data is being generated. There's just no way to escape it these days.
0: Yeah. Can you escape the cookies you're meant to accept Yeah, when you visit a website? hmm And when you sign up for anything, really, Mm -hmm. there's an app for it. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And that's data being generated. And I just want to just underscore here, it's maybe data that you may not recognize as being captured. So oftentimes, when we think about the data that's generated, you might think, oh, it's the stuff that I physically type in to Google. When I am searching for, I don't know, a purple car, This then generates a profile of the type of person that I am, because if I'm into purple cars, I might also be into Joker, as I mentioned earlier, (laughs) uh, as a comic book character. But it even goes deeper than that. Like the data that's generated about our lives could be how long we stay on a page for. Mm -hmm. I'm amazed, like the data that's captured on Instagram, Mm -hmm. on Dating apps. Mm. Did you like something? Did you equivocate about liking something? Mm. That all somehow factors into mm. the profile of the type of person that you are.
1: Um. As an aside, some of my students control their scrolling on Instagram because they're aware of this and they don't want to let Instagram know what they do or don't like. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that was a thing. They like scroll quickly at times and then slow down to let the algorithms know. Yeah. But yeah, it's an interesting point you make. And one other thing Zuboff talks about this is the fact that it's more invisible, this form of data collection. There's, there's an aspect to it, which he refers to as kind of a breakdown of the contract we don't agree, we don't formally understand, we don't sign consent forms for all of this collection of data. It just happens to us and mm. we can't escape it. It's not a contractual relationship, it's a different type of relationship that exists within surveillance capitalism.
0: So, this collection of data is so ubiquitous. Mm. It's so all encompassing or it can come to be so encompassing. And I should just quickly mention here that there are elements of this article that actually sometimes come off to my mind as being quite hyperbolic, but she's trying to basically analyze what will happen if surveillance capitalism comes to its logical conclusions. If all the things that Google wants to have happen, if they happen, what will the world look like? But I think what she's trying to argue is that there is this possibility in surveillance capitalism for data collection, for data analysis, for monitoring to become this inescapable thing. And so there's like a godlike quality to all of this data that's being generated and collected.
1: Yeah. In fact, the term she uses for that is the big other. And it's this notion that there's now this regime of surveillance and data collection that is everywhere and it is inescapable for us and it's always there and we don't really understand when it's happening and when it's not happening. Mm. But it is always happening. And because of that, our actions are becoming highly predictable. Companies now have the ability to pretty much know what we're going to do, what we're going to consume, what our actions are going to involve.
0: Mm. Because again, of the sheer amounts of data that can be generated. Once you start to generate very detailed profiles of people, it really paints a rich picture of what's likely to happen when you have these variables involved. So let's say, for example, that, you know, someone is expecting a child. All these data points can be generated from that. And If you intersect that with other variables, other things about your life that can be captured, like how wealthy you might be, if you're looking for design, if you have not just looked at a designer good, but you've bought designer good, then that means you might be more likely to buy this baby item over another. And it's not even just trying to understand, I think we mentioned earlier at the outset of this podcast about... Predicting consumer behavior. It's about understanding that if you introduce certain elements, if you say, all right, if I show them this ad, if these various things get introduced in this person's life, this is likely how a person will
1: react. And the interesting thing, as you're highlighting there, just how significant this process is, it's at this point in the text where Zuboff really starts talking about power quite a lot because she refers to this big other as this regime of data collection and surveillance that we can't escape. And then Zuboff refers to the fact that being able to control parts of this, being able to to. To generate data about people and to know about people. That's kind of a new way in which companies can have huge amounts of power. There's a great mm. little sentence here. If power was once identified with the ownership of the means of production, it is now identified with the, with ownership of the means of behavioral modification. And mm. by that, she's referring to these systems of knowing about people.
0: So what that tells me, Louis, then is that it's of utmost importance for technology companies to ingratiate themselves in the lives of the people they're collecting data from. For a company to be profitable, for a, be, for a company to accumulate wealth in this new capitalist form, and this new capitalist regime, they need to be able to position themselves as being indispensable. And I think, obviously, Google is trying to do this. Right? Google has their technicals in almost everything. There's Google Pay. There's, you might be listening to this podcast on the Google podcast platform, but you see how companies are not just content on connecting a little bit of data. They want to collect as much of it as possible so that they can generate these extremely, extremely rich profiles of people. But again, the only way to do that is to insert themselves In every part of your life, they are the mediator of you and the thing you want to do, Mm. right? So Google is like basically the middle person Mm. of pretty much most things that that people do in their everyday lives. From turning on the lights, Mm. to purchasing their groceries, Mm. to listening to podcasts, you name it, Google's there. And that makes them a very valuable company.
1: Uh, That's 100% correct. She makes a really interesting point coming off this because after saying how, you know, there's now this big other and data collection's constant, we can never escape it and, and all that, and power is tied to a company or a person's ability to capture data and have data. So... She then says, in this environment, you'd think that privacy is pretty much dead. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) That there's no privacy anywhere. But she doesn't actually say that, does she?
0: Yeah. And in in fact, this actually brings us to a segment we like to call (laughs) Say What? (laughs) (laughs) Which is a segment where we look at a quote in need of further explanation. Zuboff writes, the work of surveillance, it appears, is not to erode privacy rights, but rather to redistribute them. Instead of many people having privacy rights, these rights have been concentrated within the surveillance regime. Surveillance capitalists have extensive privacy rights and therefore many opportunities for secrets. They are increasingly used to deprive populations of choice in the matter of what about their lives remains secret.
1: It's a really interesting quote. And uh, one of the reasons I find that quote so fascinating is because if you think about like a traditional Marxist critique on capitalism, it's that the elite, the bourgeoisie, have a greater ability to control and own the means of production. And mm. it's almost like now the elite have an ability to have extra privacy. <laughs> yeah, They have the ability not to have to like share their data with the world.
0: <laughs> and what I find also quite fascinating about this is Zuboff's point that ownership of data is asymmetrical. Mm. And that these companies who generate these really rich profiles of how we live our lives, this rich understanding of how we live our lives, that this is not shared across the board. And that is her, your argument is that they may actually
1: know us collectively speaking better than we know ourselves. As a social scientist, it frustrates me to think about the rich and amazing data sets that private companies would have that researchers struggle to get their hands on. But but that's
0: what's valuable. Yeah, That's the thing that, you know, they're going to be very protective of. Mm. Because if everyone had that data, it would make their company Mm. not all that valuable, right? Because if everyone had it, why would they need to go through them? Google can sell you information about how things work, Mm. how people respond to certain stimuli. Mm.
1: Yeah, it's so true. And in fact, in the text, it's spoken about how they can also use this information, their knowledge of how people respond to certain stimuli, by intervening. (laughs) By Actually, it's not just about having a data set and thinking and planning, and then next year we'll do this or do that. Mm. Uh, Zuboff talks about companies in real time, trying to intervene in people's behavior, trying to modify what Mm. people are doing, conducting experiments of sorts in the market.
0: And that could also just be through trying to collect new forms of data. Mm. Uh, It could be to try to introduce certain elements and Mm. see what happens if they're shown a video versus a photo or If they are shown this type of text, if they're shown uh, a series of advertisements, or they're maybe just seen one at a time, what happens? There's a real experimental quality to all of this data collection and analysis.
1: She she states here, sums it up perfectly. This is a new business frontier comprised of knowledge about real-time behavior that creates opportunities to intervene and modify behavior for profit.
0: So you can really see from this text that there's a lot of rich ideas that Zuboff is generating about the way in which capitalism works in the contemporary era, in the era of information communication technologies. And we could probably continue to speak (laughs) on this topic at some length, but we might leave it there. Thanks very much, as always, for listening. We'll catch you in the next episode. Thank you. The Sociology of Everything podcast is created and hosted by Eric Sue and Louis Everest. It's produced and edited by Eric Sue, with special assistance from UniSA Online and UniSA Justice Society. To learn more about studying sociology and other programs online or in person at the University of South Australia, visit unisa.edu.au where you can search for more details. The Sociology of Everything podcast is primarily recorded on the lands of the Ghana people. The hosts of the podcast would like to pay their respects to elders past, present, and emerging. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more about the podcast, visit our website at sociologypodcast.com. Thanks for listening.